Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and the CNPS is working to save and support the communities of plants and related beings and conditions that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. There is a heaviness from the reports around the globe in the last 25 years about the alarming loss of biodiversity on our planet that sits particularly hard with every gardener that I know. With that in mind and with the hope and the knowledge of the agency we as gardeners hold in this world, I am so pleased to be in conversation today with two men who've been working and studying this very aspect of our world in their place. In July of 2021, they, along with their organizations, published a report entitled Conserving Plant Diversity in New England. Initially, the concept of author William Brumbach, Director of Conservation Emeritus of the Native Plant Trust. This report is co-authored by Brumbach and my two guests this week. The Nature Conservancy's Director of Conservation Science for the Eastern United States, Mark Anderson, and Michael Pientadosi, Director of Conservation for the Native Plant Trust. I am so happy to be speaking with you both today. Thank you for your time. Great to be here, Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm really glad to be here. I will start with you, Michael. Give us a sense of you as a person and what your personal relationship is with plants and ecology and maybe even gardens. What gets you out of bed in the morning in relation to these topics we're covering today? My day-to-day usually involves um, yet more questions about how we exist on this earth uh, and the other beings we share it with. Um, I am always drawn to investigate um, the small happenings between um, different living organisms and the relationships they share. Um, And of course, that takes a myriad of forms in whether we're talking about plants or wildlife or rivers or mountains. Uh, But ultimately, I am really focused on those ecological connections uh, between each organism in a place and what makes that system work. Um, So that gets me out of bed in the morning. That's That's a good getting out of bed. And what about you, Mark? Uh, what is your relationship with plants and ecology and, um, and gardens, if, if they're relevant to you in the most specific sense as well? Great. Well, I am a, uh, an ecologist by training. And uh, like Michael, I've been pretty much obsessed with the outdoors since I was a kid. And I spent as much time as I could growing up you know, in the outdoors and learning about other species we share the planet with. Most of my professional life as an adult has been in conservation. And I work, you know, I work with the Nature Conservancy to protect those places that we love. And over the last almost decade and a half, I've been leading the work to identify climate resilient lands and try to get those lands conserved. I should say I'm a plant ecologist, just to make that clear. (laughs) Where were you born and raised and and who were the people and places and plants that would grow you into a man for whom the the term climate resilient landscape means something and is worth getting out of bed for? Great. Well, I grew up in Colorado, um, south of Denver, out on the prairies, and My first influence really was my own dad, who was a fisherman and a hiker, and I spent a lot of my time growing up uh, hiking in the Rocky Mountains and fishing on the prairies and the South Platte, and so that's really what instilled my love of nature, Um, and with my sisters, too, who are both, who are also very much into the outdoors. You know, originally, I just thought, you know, what's the career that could most keep me outdoors? And I started to learn how to identify, you know, I was always sort of curious and had a sort of a scientific brain. So I started to identify things and look at relationships and realized that I was very interested in the rest of life that we live with and how it interacts with us and how we can, how it lives and grows and changes. So I started studying ecology really in high school. And then I went on to 
uh, graduate, I went to a program in Olympia, Washington at Evergreen State College. They had a program, a field naturalist program that really floored me. We spent a year uh, traveling around the Northwest, learning to identify plants, birds, rocks, uh, mammals, keeping a field journal and just tuning in to the natural world at a level far beyond anything, you know, really deep academic level, keeping journals. That changed my life, really. After that, I went, I moved to San Francisco, actually, and I worked in the Botanical Garden, what's now Striving Botanical Garden. At the time, it was Striving Arboretum and Botanical Garden. I worked there as a naturalist and developing uh, naturalist programs and ethnobotany programs that looked at plants from different parts of the world and their cultural histories and tried to connect that with the cultural groups in, in San Francisco, which was really fun. Um, and it was after doing that for a few years, I decided I wanted to go back to grad school and I moved to New England um, and went to grads, you know, went into plant ecology, studied with Tom Lee, a, a wonderful forest ecologist at University of New Hampshire. And when I finished that program, I got the position with the Nature Conservancy as, a, as an ecologist, as a community ecologist. And we were actually classifying natural vegetated habitats and uh, describing them so that we could do conservation of all the different habitats, which is really quite connected to this report as we'll get into. So, <laughs> What you just described would that essentially encompass what you do as Director of Conservation Science for the Eastern United States uh, on behalf of the Nature Conservancy, on behalf of us, us all, really? You know, I've been with the Nature Conservancy now 28 years, so it's a pretty different job than what I started, but, you know, my position now really is to help. I work across many states, so we uh, there's 24 states in the eastern region of the Nature Conservancy. Each of those, there's a there's an office in each of those states with a science department. And my job now really is, I have a small team uh, uh, that I work with, and and we try to coordinate the work across states so that we're beginning to coordinate all our conservation work to have a larger impact. And that really got us into the climate resilience landscapes and you know, how do we actually conserve diversity, which really, it has to be done both very locally at a small scale, but also we have to think much more regionally and globally about how all our conservation is adding up or not adding up to a bigger picture. So, And that that's starting to head us into the direction where we are headed. Uh, but first, we're going to turn back to you, Michael. And same same question, give us the sort of arc of... Uh, your earliest influences, people, places, plants that grew you into someone for whom this work would be your calling, and then take us on the path that led you to being the director of conservation for the Native Plant Trust, take us on your journey there and your role there. Sure. Well, um, I could start with a quote from Nathaniel Hawthorne that is, uh, New England is about as large a lump of earth as my heart can possibly take in. Um, and <laughs> and I, I am indeed from this region. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire uh, for the most of my life as a child. Um, and basically everywhere I looked or went, uh, plant life was, was a dominant presence. Um, for me, as a, as a young person, um, going out into these places of green, uh, whether they're marshes or forests or mountains or whatever, um, was seeing this wall of green, seeing this kind of connected but unified whole, and over time, learning to name things, learning to give them the attention and respect to name them in the first place, um, brought me into botany. Ultimately, I think, um, that kind of naming is a way to show respect and to uh, and to acknowledge things. So for me, that was um, that was the start. Um, one of the the things that drew me further and further in and made this eventually my profession um, was the the need to slow down and pay close attention to things. Um, and that was. Um, that was a valuable lesson, not only in botany, but also in just general uh, life skills, I guess. Uh, but I, I found a lot in that and slowing down and paying attention and realized ultimately that there's yet more and yet more uh, to each living thing when you investigate it, when you pay attention to it. 
on the path to becoming director of conservation with Native Plant Trust, um, I've had a, a real winding history um, for the most part, um, starting out by studying uh, plant biology and conservation at the University of New Hampshire, uh, where I did my undergraduate degree, um, and then really went into uh, applied conservation or applied work with plants pretty much immediately following college. Um, I traveled around the continental US doing agricultural work, uh, doing some land stewardship work, doing animal husbandry. So in starting with, with Native Plant Trust, uh, which at the time was named New England Wildflower Society, um, I arrived there in 2014, uh, late in the year. And uh, initially, I was um, the manager of the seed bank of rare and endangered species. In uh, 2019, I became director of conservation um, and uh, basically escalated the, the work that I do from um, focusing on, on that core piece of seed banking and at situ conservation, um, but also the plant conservation volunteer program, uh, which is a community science volunteer monitoring program that works through all the six states of New England with natural heritage bureaus uh, to monitor and collect data uh, and to collect seed of species that are uh, rare or endangered uh, in the region or in the state or globally. And we do a, a myriad of work that relates to both research and applied conservation, from some uh, kind of basic genetic research to uh, land stewardship, land management, um, seed banking, propagation, augmentation, conservation plans, and a whole bunch of other things that ultimately fall under the guise of conservation. Um, my mission has been the same as Native Plant Trust for as long as I can remember, which is to conserve and promote the native plants of New England uh, to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. Um, I've always attempted to do that, and now I think I have the opportunity to do it, uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I love these stories. I love uh, this diversity of, of pathway because, as we know, it's going to take a diversity of humans to help uh, offset uh, the decline of other biodiversity in our world as a result of, in large part, our, our impact on the planet um, from not paying attention and not understanding connections in, in many cases. At some point, you two plus William, and your organizations, the Native Plant Trust and the Nature Conservancy, come together and decide to collaborate on a project. What is the genesis of this project? So the very genesis of this, I think, is back in um, really discussions we were having at Native Plant Trust about how do we focus on the biodiversity of species, plant species in the New England region uh, and the conservation goals surrounding them. Um, we do an awful lot of work with individual species, mostly with rare taxa. Uh, and so this was a broadening of, of our perspective, really. It was trying to understand these same conservation goals we typically apply to individual taxa to whole habitats uh, and to understanding how they may persist and how they are different and unique um, and how best to protect them. Um, ultimately, that brought us to the Nature Conservancy and to Mark, uh, who were um, the source of most of that data uh, on both climate resiliency and land securement and protections. Um, and, you know, ultimately, we're, we're core and delineating habitat and doing all the other things we attempted to do in this report. Um, so it made sense to become kind of natural partners in pursuing this goal. I'll head over to you, Mark, to add to this. I, I was really struck by, you know, one of the very first sentences in describing the report. That is, uh, to quote from it, this desire to know whether a century or more of land conservation has protected enough land in the right places to save the region's plant diversity. And it seems to me really um, full of insight and very prudent to reconsider what we have done before we just keep doing it if it's not doing what we actually want it to do. You know, and I think this is the same um, kind of questioning that's going into wildfire land management here in the West. And um, we might be later than we should be at asking some of these questions, but we're asking them now. And I think it's crucial. Well, great. So first of all, I'm so glad you get that question. So I can see the excitement when you see it. I mean, that is really a fascinating question and an important mm -hmm. question. Mm. Uh, you know, how are we doing? And there's so much good work going on, but 
how is it actually spread across the landscape and is it having the effect we want it to be? So I would say, you know, one thing that's really changed in conservation over the last 20 years, and I'm very involved in this, I, I, I work with a small science team, a couple of people I want to mention, Charles Faree, Melissa Clark, and Arlene Olivero, who have done some incredible mapping work. And a lot of our understanding of how the world is put together spatially has really changed. So first of all, we developed a pretty accurate map of some 64 different types of plant communities and what their actual distribution is all across New England. So we can start to measure where it is, how much there is, and we can look at the condition of that so just creating that map, which took many years, you know, started to open up. And then we can, we also have detailed maps of where all the secured lands and public lands and easements are across the landscape. And then with our climate resilience work, we start to have really detailed maps of microclimates and topography and fragmentation and important linkages. So, so the world of conservation now is infused with all this spatial information that allows us, it's really become much more of a hard science in a way. It allows us to actually study and understand these patterns and adjust our conservation activities in a way that will really get an impact. Now, all that said, we've just gotten to this point. So one of the excitements about this report was we started to bring all this together and and look at it and make draw conclusions from it which is really brand new so i hope that you'll start to see lots of this over the next 10 years around the world because you know that's that's where we've got to get in order to actually create a world that sustains nature and people at the same time we've really got to get savvy at this so This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking this week with Mark Anderson, the Nature Conservancy's Director of Conservation Science for the Eastern United States, and Michael Pientadosi, Director of Conservation for the Native Plant Trust. The two men are co-authors of a 2021 report entitled Conserving Plant Diversity in New England. While based in New England, it has ramifications and lessons for us all. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to save and support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. For information on becoming a member on their many statewide plant-based conservation research and programming initiatives and their two informative and beautiful publications, Flora and Artemisia, please visit cnps.org. That's cnps.org. Hey, it's Jennifer. I am thinking today about the two sides of naming and knowing the names of plants. It's a sign of respect and intimacy, but can also be a sign of control and ownership that comes with a lot of colonial baggage. This, I think, has sometimes hobbled our perspective and vision as to how we understand plants, plant communities, and ecology. I think these blinders are important for us as gardeners to understand and to do our best to understand our plants and places by always trying to better understand as many of the histories that overlay these plants and histories, these names of loved ones, as we can. The indigenous names of our plant friends, the different common names, and the botanical Latin names as well, by which, at least for now, helps ensure we're all talking about the same beloved plant friends. We're back now to our conversation with Mark Anderson and Michael Pientadosi, the Nature Conservancy's Director of Conservation Science for the Eastern United States and Director of Conservation for the Native Plant Trust, respectively. 
As we come back, Mark and Michael define what they mean by the phrase, a climate resilient landscape, and they go over the parameters for their report. I think it's well recognized now that our climate is changing pretty dramatically. And a lot of people think about climate change as a threat, and, and it is a threat in, in a way, but it is a, it is a change in the ambient conditions of the earth. You know, it's a change in our moisture and temperature regimes. And in response to that change, much of nature has to rearrange. You know, and so in conservation, we started to think, how do we know we're protecting the right sites? You know, what if we're protecting places that are going to be completely different in the future? So we begin to ask the question is, what makes a, a place more resilient to climate change? And we dug into a lot of science and started to uncover some really interesting facts that you might that might surprise you. You know, when there's a when there's a change in the climate or when you get a disturbance event, it doesn't really propagate across the ground equally everywhere. There are places that are quite buffered from the effects of climate change because they themselves have a lot of climate variability. And the key is what we call a microcli microclimates, you know? So if you go hiking in an area with some topography, you will notice that, you know, the north slope is often cooler. There might be some snow left on it. You get over on the hot, sunny, south-facing slope and it's 10 degrees hotter and you find, sometimes you find completely different plants living there than on the north slope. If you get up high on the landscape, you get more wind and exposure. If you get down in the gullies, it's moist and wet. So if you are in a landscape like that, you actually have all sorts of climates built into the landscapes. You have the climate variability, temperature and moisture variability. And if we find places that have that built-in climate variability, those are places that are much less affected by the changing regional climate because the species that live in those landscapes can actually persist in the landscape just by moving around, you know, locally. They don't have to leave the landscape and go north. You probably see it in your own garden, you know, you get a moist spot and you get a whole bunch of different plants that start showing up in the wet spot and you get, you know. And so what we called climate resilient land was land that had relatively more microclimates, more climate variability built into the landscape. And those are the places that at least we hope, I mean, there's a lot of good evidence, but you never know a hundred years from now, you know, a lot of good evidence now that those are places where things will persist much longer and the turnover rates will slow down. And and will likely maintain lots of diversity in the future. Can you give us one example of a and describe its physical location that illustrates what you're what you are saying? I mean, I I think that I am understanding it, and it it has to do with diversity in the space you're talking about, in the geology and the topography of the space, so that there is uh, there are a lot of flexible options for the community of plants that are living there to move to, to lean into, and in all likelihood, they are used to a lot of shifts because of these differences. So they are adapted to that kind of shifting, whereas a location that was basically a monoclimate or a monotopography is more rigidly set in those conditions and thus less responsive as it's trying to adapt. Well said. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just give you a location right near where I am. So, you know, this can happen at a large scale like mountains to prairies, or it can happen at a small scale like what I'll describe here. So I live in a somewhat fragmented oak forest <laughs> <laughs> and the area that I'm right in where there is a bunch of development, you know, uh, or some development is relatively flat and pretty uniform in climate. But if you go down about a half mile down the road, you start to get into some small little foothills and there's some big river systems that run through the Merrimack River. And as soon as you get into those areas, it changes quite a bit. You still have a lot of the same dominant oaks, but you start to get a lot more species and you start to get 
patterns you see in the winter, you know, snow melt on one side of the hill, drier on the other side of the hill, you get things that depend on the river and the river floods a little. And that's the area where we're talking about, that's a much more resilient area that because there's a lot of little climatic uh, nooks and crannies, you might think, on the landscape compared right to where I am, which is relatively flat and homogenous. So that is the definition um, of a climate resilient landscape. How did you take that definition then and start developing the, the physical boundaries for your report and the methods with which you would use to start to collect information to answer that initial question, like, where are we saving land? And is it the right land in the right place in order to conserve the greatest diversity of species over time? And why don't I send that one over to you, Michael? What we're trying to define here is that there are different qualities that are intrinsic to different habitats, uh, suites of different species, um, and they are impacted differently by what uh, level of climate resiliency is inherent in uh, the geographic area they exist. In other words, I think we, we did attempt to uh, kind of delineate 43 or so habitats for the New England region, because among heritage bureaus and ecologists and conservationists, there are um, kind of state-specific uh, natural community types and definitions. So we wanted to make it so that you could look at the New England region as a whole, as a uh, single uh, geographic area, and understand that these habitats persist more or less uh, similar across the six-state region. Um, we also wanted to be able to kind of pinpoint what areas of each of those habitat types do or don't fall on climate resilient areas. Um, in other words, we're trying to look at, I think, both the spatial scale of what is on the landscape where, but also the temporal scale of um, a lot of land conservation tends to be very static and based in current uh, and present situations, as opposed to looking at what might be the trajectory of that landscape or of that habitat or of those species. Um, so I've, I've talked a lot about the fact that I think between delineating habitats, defining important plant areas, or going into climate resiliency, all of these things uh, come back to a, uh, an issue of not only land uh, quantity in conservation, but also the quality of the, that landscape. And um, ultimately getting that in a lot of land conservation, and Mark can speak to this more as uh, TNC is a land trust, um, but in a lot of land trust land acquisition, it is often opportunistic and it is a matter of someone gifting land or land you know, coming into your possession. It is not so much strategically defined that you're going to attempt to conserve this resilient parcel and that one and connect the two or work in that in that manner. Um, so what we're trying to do with this report is quantity and quality. It's trying to have proportional representation of different habitat types, which ultimately are um, uniquely biodiverse areas. Um, no single habitat is um, is representative of any other. They're all distinct and ultimately have different interactions, have different functional landscape um, and simply react differently to changing climates. Um, so it's important that we not only think about just conserving the green spaces, but that the, those green spaces are different and they're unique in their differences. What a great like puzzle patchwork of, of these different um, lenses that are all then overlaid. Uh, and just to remind people, uh, this, the New England states include Maine, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. And so essentially you are, you are looking at these, you know, political <clears throat> boundaries, but they also are these physical spaces as well with some natural uh, physical boundaries, not just political ones uh, that help mark them out. You are looking at all of their diversity of plant life, you are looking at their diversity of actual habitat types. And you said there are 43 that you, you kind of pulled out. And then you are kind of mapping where each of those 43 exist across this whole six state region. And then you're looking at the kind of greatest abundance of plant life of that one community type where it all lays, and then trying to see, does that fall on secured space or not fall on secured space? And then what are you going to do about that? 
That's that's accurate. Yes. Very very well described. With one more piece is that we're also looking at where those microclimate areas are right. within within each of the habitats. So you, can you find a place with a lot of diversity that's that's packed with microclimates, the resilient areas? Yep. And so, what as you were doing this, as you were laying all of these different lenses. Were there surprises? Did you have to alter your methodology as you went along? And then, um, you know, and, and again, this is sort of a two-year timeline. Um, tell us about your experience in the process with trying to get all of these overlays put together. I'll, I'll start that one, Michael. I mean, I'm laughing just because getting all these overlays just to just to get this puzzle all overlaid and put together correctly was in itself you know sort of a challenge <laughs> and it took took you know right as we were starting at the pandemic hit which you know sort of cut us off from certain resources neither of us at least for that first year ever went back to our office you know so we were working sort of with our at our output or our, our outposts um you know but that puzzle does all fit together so once you start to get it all fit together then we'd start to look at what were the patterns uh what were the patterns we were seeing and usually michael and bill and i would get on a phone call we you know we'd we'd, uh, we'd stack some of these up make some maps look at the statistics get on a phone call and just talk our way through what are we seeing and what do these patterns mean and often adjust a little what we're doing so there were lots of surprises. I'll, I'll stop and let Michael take over for that part. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, one of those surprises or, or one of the revelations I think we had in the process was that we did need some kind of a benchmark to refer to um, and ultimately to give some context to the fact that the recommendations and goals we were attempting to meet were not just uh, arbitrary, that they were based in uh, global strategies and global goals for plant conservation, such as the Global Strategy for Plant Conservation, the GSPC, um, part of the United Nations, Nations Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, we also brought in the Global Deer for Nature by Dinnerstein et al. 2019 as uh, a paper that references that global deal for nature. Um, this aims to conserve 30% of the land area on, in the world, ecosystems in the world by 2030. Um, and then we also, on top of that, began to hear about the um, Conserving and Restoring America the Beautiful uh, initiative that the Biden administration has brought up. Again, a 30 by 30 goal um, focused on the United States. And I, I think through all of that, we began to realize that we both wanted to represent um, this as a regional approach because it very much is uh, for the New England region, um, but also to understand that this is couched within other global strategies and other global measures of plant conservation, plant diversity. Um, so we we had to factor that in in some way and then and yet create something unique from it. So we use something like the Global Deal for Nature as kind of a springboard to refine our goals, the New England targets, the net goals that are included in the report. Um, so um, all of that is to say that we had other templates and contexts that we did um, were influenced inf influenced us and in how we how we put this together and how we measured things um, and how we ultimately um, what perspective we took what scale we were looking at it at. Um, but it's worth mentioning that just like this data uh, exists with Nature Conservancy in New England, just like this data exists on plant conservation, both at Native Plant Trust and Natural Heritage Bureaus, um, this kind of report, this template of um, this report could be done in any geographic area um, in the United States, in the world. And um, I think that is uh, a hopeful goal coming out of this, is that others will be influenced enough to take on this kind of uh, synthesis of information that is, is available to people um, throughout the U.S. at least for certain. This is Cultivating Place. We're speaking this week with Mark Anderson, Director of Conservation Science for the Eastern United States for the Nature Conservancy, and Michael Pientadosi, Director of Conservation for the Native Plant Trust. The two men are co-authors, among others, of a 2021 report entitled Conserving Plant Diversity in New England. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. So 
So thinking out loud this week, I think that it is worth noting that while this biodiversity update report and its goals are focused on the New England region, as Michael and Mark point out, the report is based in global strategies and global goals around conservation, namely the Global Strategy for Plant Conservation, the GSPC, which is part of the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, aiming to conserve 30% of the ecosystems of the globe for biological diversity by 2030. It is rooted as well in the Restoring America the Beautiful campaign that the Biden administration has put out, focusing on a 30 by 30 goal of plant conservation in the United States. If you're not familiar with these and are interested in taking a peek, I've included links to both strategic planning documents in this week's episode show notes at cultivatingplace.com. You can check them out there. We're back now to our conversation with Michael Pientadosi, Director of Conservation for the Native Plant Trust, and Mark Anderson, the Nature Conservancy's Director of Conservation Science for the Eastern United States. As we come back, Mark and Michael give us a distillation of their stated goals for their 2021 report and of their findings across the largest habitat types from the conservation report. Michael referenced America the Beautiful, and I think this is great for your puzzle analogy. You know, this 30%, this 30% goal, 30% of the landscape conserved or secured could have a massive positive impact on biodiversity if it was distributed the right way. So I think you can see we're saying, well, it's one thing to say 30% of New England is under securement. It's a very different question to say, do we have 30% of each of our different habitats under securement? And an even higher bar, we said, do we have 30% of the resilient parts of each of our habitats under securement? So that's the question we were trying to translate. Um, and that's the question we think if we can get to the, if we could get to that level of conservation, we might really have a chance of sustaining the full breadth of diversity. So that's how we frame the question. And then we looked. Um, at forest and wetlands and patch communities and important plant areas. And each one told a different story. So maybe we should tag team this. I'll, I'll say a little on forests. We are a forested landscape. This is not California at all. 86% of the landscape is forested. But of the 10, we have 10 dominant forest types. You, you think of spruce fir and northern hardwoods and oak pine forests and our maritime oak forests. You know, if you look across all 10 habitats, there's only really one that meets that securement goal. And those are the very high elevation alpine forests. Um, we call them montane spruce fir forests and alpine. And all the rest of the forest, uh, the more the boreal types have higher levels of securement. And then when you get down into northern hardwood forests or into the oak pine forests, you have much, much lower levels of securement. So one of the big learnings was that our, we have got to get conservation into the more common oak pine forest types, our maritime forest types, and some of our lower elevation forests. You know, otherwise we're doing a pretty good job on high elevation stuff <laughs> to summarize it. I'll send it to you, Michael, take the next group. The next group, broadly speaking, is uh, the group of wetlands that encompass different wetland types throughout the region. And that is covering about 12% of all of New England's uh, geographic area. It's, it's tough to quantify exactly how uh, ecologically valuable wetlands are because um, they're obviously crucial to sustaining half of the plant species that exists, birds, other wildlife, um, but they are much less conserved than we would have expected, specifically thinking about things like the Wetland Protections Act and, and otherwise that you would think would have furthered this a little bit. Um, 
of the 18 types of bogs, swamps, floodplains, and marshes, only six of these meet the GSPC and three meet the New England targets. Um, and these are primarily small and unique bogs and peatlands. So areas that, uh, number one, are, are small in geographic area, and number two, um, face relatively low pressures to uh, develop uh, them into you know, housing lots or what have you. Um, so none of the five most common wetland types um, meet, meet either target, um, although many unprotected examples occur uh, on resilient land, 20% um, of each habitat is secured against conversion. Um, the, the reaching that goal will take something like 405,000 acres uh, reaching the GSPC targets for wetland protection uh, just, in, just in New England alone. Um, so there's quite a lot of work to do. And um, despite what, what some, I guess, environmental history might uh, lead us to think about wetland protection, um, Again, it's it's only in a few dominant types, and or rather a few small and easy to protect types, and missing a lot of the dominant types of wetlands that sustain most of that biodiversity. We historically we drained a lot of our you know we drained a lot of our wetlands. We've farmed a lot of them, and we are so our wetlands are recovering really from uh, heavy use. And we but we're still draining wetlands when we build a new mall or something. So. I think there are enormous lot of policy restrictions now on wetlands that I think have really stopped the trend that was going down, but we haven't really recovered back to the state that we were in, say, 100 years ago when it comes to wetlands at all. So, Do you think the policy we have when it comes to like the Clean Water Act or the Wetlands Act, do they have enough teeth? Are they being enforced in the ways that they should be, or are there so many economic pressures for development that people are finding, you know, mitigation workarounds. Well, yeah. <laughs> Our CEQA just doesn't have, it doesn't have teeth in most cases. And if we're serious as a culture about, about these kinds of hopes and goals for conservation, that's one of the places we have to, we have to also be more serious. Well, it's the same here in New England. All that we have more water, we have more wetlands, uh, but we have there's you know there's water quality issues in all our wetlands, and we have most of our restored wetlands don't have the you know the muck soils and peats and stuff that they originally had are no longer there, and so they're not at the same quality that they were, you know. And we're still harvest you know we're still losing our salt marshes, so. So we, we've talked about the forest, um, and, and then we talked about the wetlands. Take us to the next uh, habitat type, Mark. Okay, well, the last habitat is a little more optimistic. We, we call them patch-forming habitats, and those are things that are like summits and cliffs and barrens and dunes. They're unique parts of the landscape that are do not cover much area. So in total, they cover about 2% of New England, but they are packed with interesting, you know, botanical gems and rare species and unique communities. Um, and for them, you know, out of, I think we had 14, let's see, 14 types, half of those were fully protected or met the goals. Alpine is also in there. Um, and the only ones that we're really missing are our sand-based. We have some sand-based habitats that we call pine barrens. They're these cool pitch pine, scrub oak, fire-dependent systems, and some of our coastal grasslands. Those we are, have not done so well on. They're more vulnerable. But a lot of our rocky uh, cliff and summit type, we're doing great on. Now, I think the reason we're doing so well is there is not a lot of other use for these types of lands, and they are also relatively easy to conserve. They're, you know, a thousand acres will usually get an entire thing, and they're something that conservation has really focused on. If, if I may jump in, in 
just to just to make the point, I think in a lot of the patch forming communities and some of the wetland types as well, when you tend to have low lying, um, relatively flat areas that are sand or silt based, you not only have some vulnerability from large storm events on the coast or otherwise, but you also have the vulnerability to being converted into, um, into condominiums or homes or a mall or something. Because as Mark says, they're relatively easy places to put structures and to, to fill in and build upon. And so they just simply have a higher, um, a higher threat from, from land conversion uh, as opposed to being uh, allowed to, you know, proceed as, as nature would intend. Yes. And, and I think the, the patch communities, as you've described them, they're, they're kind of the perfect trifecta of one being very difficult to build on um, and not uh, desired by human habitation uh, and economically there are impediments uh, to building there. So that keeps the developers at bay for the most part. And, uh, but two, they are such unique environments that the plants that have co-evolved in those spaces are uniquely uh, adept at dealing with the, the rigors of the site or, uh, you know, competition from anything else because nobody else wanted to live there, uh, in, in essence, um, which gives you some really cool plants and does help protect them. How do we move forward from here? How do we take what is in essence, I think I'm hearing, um, very detailed information on where we are failing, uh, in order to not keep failing, where where do we go from here? What were your what were your recommendations and takeaways? I, I should say that I think um, ultimately that the really broad goal of this is to inform people that humans don't have to have a negative impact on the land and that development isn't necessarily bad. Conservation isn't always, you know, the greatest goal, um, but there's a spectrum of, of ways we can live on the landscape that simply impact fewer species and emphasize biodiversity. Um, I think this is, this is trying to get to, um, you know, these particular goals that are, are best for all life and represent biodiversity in a proportion way um, across these different habitat types. As you mentioned, you, you know, there, there are some really cool plants uh, and that's true of every habitat type, but they aren't equally represented under some kind of conservation securement or protection. Um, so that is, that is one of our main goals. Um, we also would make recommendations toward conservation of lands that uh, do tend to have higher vulnerability to development, such as those sand-based communities. Um, in New England alone, we have a globally rare uh, coastal plain uh, habitat type that um, is, is very unique to this area and a lot of the Eastern Atlantic seaboard. Um, and yet that, that habitat type is, is so prone to development and so prone to uh, major storm surge and disturbance in that way. Um, so I think um, that would be one area to investigate. Um, we also have, have pulled out the important plant areas as we define them um, in the New England region, which are areas that have um, kind of built in uh, climate resiliency. They're highly resilient to rapid climate change, um, but they also represent about 92% of the different habitat types in the region between these um, 234 important plant areas. Um, so they represent habitat, which means they represent biodiversity uh, in a proportional way, um, but they also also have an unusual density or abundance of rare and endangered plant species. Um, so we can protect the most vulnerable individuals in a plant community uh, while also representing the, the broader diversity that exists in these plant communities. Um, and the goal is to do that for the present uh, and also the future. So to look long term at, at how we do this. Um, it is certainly an achievable goal, but there's, there's a lot of work to do, put simply. Mark, what would you add to that? Yeah, well, so I, I guess I, I agree with everything Michael said. I, I would say we've, in New England, we've done a lot of great conservation work. After finishing this report, I thought, you know, we've done pretty much, we've pretty much completed all the easy stuff. <laughs> and now, and that's wonderful, you know, but now we've really got to get into the hard stuff, which is the lower elevation stuff, uh, you know, plant communities where people live, our floodplains, our marshes, our sand dunes, our, our common forest types like our oak forests. And we've got to really make those systems where, where a lot of us live 
we've got to conserve them. And it may take some different strategies. You know, we may, it's not going to be possible to just sort of secure it and lock it away the way you could with a high mountaintop. Um, so we've got to investigate how we do that and how we engage, you know, we're going to have to engage people in the conservation of these other uh, habitats. And if we don't, you know, we're losing those and we're going to be sort of left with the ones that were really occur mostly in the place. They're, they're good. I don't want to judge them because they're great. I love mountains. <laughs> you know, they're great habitats, but they're the sort of the ones that were easy where nobody wanted that land anyway. And so that's the challenge I see ahead. Yeah. And it, you know, I mean, I think for me, as I listen and how I pull in myself as a gardener and um, provide a a strategy of thinking and a goal for, for my own, um, activities and decision-making going forward. The, the goal is not to, um, create zoos out of small spaces of land and say, look, there, we did it. We conserved those 1700 plants and they're over there. The goal I think comes right back to what Michael said in the beginning about, knowing things and naming things and what you said, Mark, about your um, epiphany in the field at Evergreen of starting to see places and see species and see them working together and be lit up by that. I think so much of this has to do with making visible these spaces that are doing all of these um, I, I don't want to say services because that's not what they are, but they have these functions on our planet that make our planet beautiful and easy for us to live on. And that's the, you know, the floodplains and the, uh, the, the filtering capacity of that peat that we're now missing in these wetlands or, you know, whatever, whatever those, those interactions are that make, have made our lives as humans easier, more beautiful, more abundant. Um, we as humans need to, you know, and it goes back to that 2019 UN report on the biodiversity loss. And their point being, we can't just preserve biodiversity. We have to shift our paradigms and, and our thinking. And one, one of the great takeaways for me from this report um, even though it shows us, you know, that we have underconserved here, 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 is that it gives us those lenses that you all put together to say, but here's where we do it. Here's where we are falling short. Here's the exact habitat type um, that we need to recognize and help work into how we live on the land. And so that that gives us a vocabulary, like very tangible things to see and things to think about as we make decisions as cities, as families, as gardeners and garden clubs. I don't know. What were your greatest hopes? What are, what are, what are your greatest points of optimism out of this report, gentlemen? Well, I, I just want to respond to your, that was very well said. So, <laughs> you know, I, couldn't agree more that we we humans were embedded in these living dynamic systems you know all around us whether we're paying attention to them or not they're supporting and sustaining us and just trying to get uh trying to recognize them and name them and think about you know conservation and their future and how they're going to change is you know just critical life's work for many of us, you know. And much of it comes back to the the basic lessons that my mother taught me, and I'm sure many others did, to share with people and to share with other persons. And ultimately what we're trying to do is um, share in a way that is 
is more adequate and is more respectful. Um, and clearly, we are not the only thing that drives uh, life on Earth. In fact, we often suppress some of that. And so I think the goal here is to step back and say, look, conservation resources and funding is, is limited. Uh, the ability to conserve land at these scales is limited. And so we want to take some of the guesswork out of that and show it uh, from a strategic angle that you can do this, you can have a positive impact. I, I very much believe people will come around to this. But it's important to acknowledge that when we just think of something like the climate crisis as being related to, to carbon or just related to greenhouse gases, we kind of miss the point that a lot of this is based in our disconnection from nature. And when it comes down to it, um, in order to have relationships with the natural world and to build them, um, a, an abundance of that life has to persist. And we need to protect that and be good stewards of it in order to um, to grow and to learn as, as a human species, uh, as well as just another organism on earth. And I think that, you know, that therein lies the greatest hope, which is also at the, the heart of the, of the methodology behind the report, which was how have we been doing things? How has that worked out? How can we change what we are doing to make it work out better? And I think if we apply that same rigor to how have we as a human species uh, gardened and built on the land that we now inhabit, how has that not worked out? And how do we rethink how we do that so that we don't diminish everything we live with? Um, and there are ways to do it. We just need to start seeing them and putting our, our, our money and our tools um, behind that shift. I just do, I see, I see so much capacity for gardeners to be part of these solutions because they see things that other people can't see. And they are often part of the problem. Um, and they have been part of the problem. We gardeners have been part of the problem, but we could also be, you know, the sort of driving lungs of these new suburban habitat spaces. So, yeah. And a lot of the time, the that growth for each person begins in the garden. It begins with putting your hands to work um, and also paying attention to, as you said, those really nuanced interactions that happen all around us. Yeah. So it's crucial yeah. you do that. Yeah. There's nothing like seeing a, a moth chrysalis or a butterfly chrysalis uh, hatch in your garden to make you put away the, the chemicals in a big hurry. Like there is nothing more transformative than that for most gardeners I know. So we just need to keep doing it. Exactly. But you were going to add I, something, Mark. Yeah. Well, I learned when we released this report that there is a there are a ton of thoughtful, caring plant lovers out there who maybe they're pretty quiet in general because, you know, uh, the big, we've released some other reports about climate change, all sorts of things that have not gotten the response that this report got, you know, and we got, we had phone calls and interviews and I, I still get comments all the time from people who really care about plants and care about you know and they equate plants to life and they equate plants to their own life and i've been so pleasantly surprised by that response yeah yeah <laughs> it's humbling to say the least yeah well i i think i i i feel based on what i do that we are at a moment where there are and oddly enough, I think the pandemic helped us in this, that many people began to lose some of their plant blindness um, and understand uh, much more specifically what plants mean in their lives, um, whether that's food or mental health or clean air. Beer and wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I think that's great. I think we're seeing a, a convergence and I'm, I'm happy to spend every day trying to make that convergence come sooner and more vigorously. So. Agree. Yeah. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time today. It's been a, a joy to speak with you and thank you for the work on this report. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a real kindred spirit. I'm grateful to be here with both of you and thank you, Jennifer, for allowing us to speak today. 
Mark Anderson is the Nature Conservancy's Director of Conservation Science for the Eastern United States, the western edge of which is Tennessee. Michael Pientadosi is the Director of Conservation for the Native Plant Trust, based in Massachusetts. Michael and Mark are co-authors, among others, of a 2021 report entitled Conserving Plant Diversity in New England. This report was first a concept of author William Brumbach, Director of Conservation Emeritus for the Native Plant Trust. The authors of the report wish to thank, among the many other people who contributed to its goals and findings, both past and present, the Natural Heritage Network, a community of ecologists and botanists at agencies throughout the New England states. These ecologists and botanists are the ones out in the field collecting rare plant locations and population status, and especially the important plant areas noted in this report are directly informed by their generously having shared their field-collected data. For more information and to read the full report, please head over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's episode notes under the podcast tab. Join us again next week when we move back to the beauty and wonder of the garden itself in this season, that is the winter season, in conversation with UK-based photographer Andrew Montgomery, whose new book, co-created with writer and plantswoman Claire Foster, is entitled Winter Gardens. In winter, the garden takes on a new, almost mystical guise. Whether you are drawn to the crisp shapes of a traditional topiary garden or the anarchy of a meadow full of seed heads, there is beauty and wonder to extract from every garden at this time of year. And there is a deeply satisfying visual beauty and wonder in every page of this artistically conceived tribute to the winter garden. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. For more information on the conservation report, head over to cultivatingplace.com where you can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and you can read more about and see many photos from this week's topic under the podcast tab. That's all at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.